Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Stephen Michalak was looking forward to his weekend at Falcon Lake in Manitoba. During the week, he lived in Winnipeg with his wife and children, working as an industrial mechanic. However, his true passion was geology. He was fascinated by unearthing precious metals and spent much of his free time as an amateur prospector, mining for quartz and silver. He staked a claim to a portion of land near Falcon Lake, where he knew he would likely find quartz, perhaps even silver. He had high hopes for his haul on this particular weekend. So, in May of 1967, he left home for a long weekend of prospecting and restorative fresh air in the wilderness. Little did he know that his peaceful world was about to be shattered. Part 1. The Incident of the UFO One Friday evening on May 19, 1967, Stephen Michalak took a Greyhound bus from his home in River Heights to Falcon Beach. He had worked all day so he didn't get on the bus to Falcon Beach until 7.30 p.m. It was a two-hour ride, so he would get in late in the evening. That didn't bother Stephen, though. He was just excited to get to his motel. He arrived in town, grabbed a late dinner, and went to bed. He wanted to get an early start the next morning. By 6 a.m., he had left the hotel and set out for the spot he had in mind. He was sure he was about to strike it rich and was full of anticipation. Stephen found a promising vein of quartz and set to work mining it. All of a sudden, a flock of geese exploded from the nearby brush, honking and squawking. The deafening racket was frightening. What had them so riled? He warily glanced around. Was there a predator nearby? It wouldn't be completely unexpected, although certainly it could be problematic. He was literally in the middle of nowhere, and if there was trouble, he would have a hard time getting help. Very slowly, so he wouldn't spook any nearby animals, he stood up. That's when Stephen's blood ran cold. Up in the sky, he spotted something unlike anything he'd ever seen before. In the sky were two objects silently floating. They were odd-looking, almost like hovering cigars with humps in their centers. They were silent and seemed to glow red. Stephen froze as he watched one of the odd-looking objects descend. When it landed on a rocky ledge near him, he could swear that it changed shape to resemble a disc. The other aircraft hovered for several more minutes and then zoomed away. Believing there was no imminent danger, Stephen assumed this must be a secret experimental military vehicle. He was fascinated by this unusual aircraft. He'd never seen anything like it, 
and wanted to capture its likeness. He pulled out his pencil and paper and sat peacefully for the next 30 minutes as he sketched the craft before him. He drew the outline of the body of the ship, and he hoped to convey as much as possible with his sketch. He labeled it, made notations about the things he observed, and he even estimated the sizes and measurements of some of the features of the ship. Stephen was as detailed as he could be, but one thing bothered him. There were no markings on the ship, no insignias. Military crafts typically identified their origins. What was the ship hiding? Stephen needed to get a closer look. He sensed that this was more mysterious than he first realized. Even if this was a secret experiment, he knew that there must be a detail somewhere that would shed more light on the question he was asking. Who was inside? And what were they doing? Setting aside his sketch, Stephen cautiously approached the aircraft. The air became noticeably warmer the closer he got to the ship. A soft, low hum, like the whirring, hissing sound of an engine, was ringing in his ears, and the stretch of something strong filled his nostrils. What was that? Gas? No, he realized with dread. It was something worse. It was sulfur. The ship's construction was odd, too. It takes a lot of metal to build a ship of this size. Most aircraft are patched together with several pieces of metal so that you would see seams and rivets, but not this craft. It seemed to be modeled from one large piece of metal. Yet, that would be nearly impossible. And to add to the peculiarity, no identifying marks were found. He later recalled that he had the impression that the craft resembled a piece of colored glass because it was so smooth. The color of the ship was not static, either. It sometimes appeared gray. Then it would look as if it were red. Stephen could find no source on the ship that would seem to explain that. Stephen slowly circled the aircraft, taking it all in. He noticed a door was open and there seemed to be life inside. There were lights on and the soft buzz of voices and conversation drifted out. He listened for a few moments but couldn't distinguish clear words. He identified two speakers that sounded human. Each voice was distinct, but somewhat muffled. One of the speakers spoke at a higher pitch than the other. Finally, he called out to them, wondering if they needed some mechanical assistance. He assumed they must have been broken down. After all, what else could explain all the oddities? Still believing that this aircraft was from the United States military, he addressed the Yankee boys inside the ship. The voices abruptly stopped. In the ensuing silence, Stephen wondered if perhaps they didn't speak English. He tried again, this time in his native Polish tongue. No response. He tried Russian, still silence. Finally, he resorted to German, but still no reply came. Confused, Stephen backed away. This was getting weirder and weirder by the minute. A shiver crawled over his body. He could see the lights flashing different colors inside the opening. He took these to be from the instruments inside the ship. Thinking quickly, he pulled out the welding goggles he carried to protect his eyes when he was prospecting. He put them on and took another couple of steps toward the ship. 
Without warning, three panels suddenly slid across the opening and closed off the doorway. As Stephen reached out to touch the craft before him, the ship melted off the fingertips of his gloves. Before Stephen could react, the strange craft rotated clockwise to reveal what appeared to be an exhaust grid. Hot gas gushed from the holes in the vent, aimed directly at Stephen and hitting him squarely in the chest. The strong jet of gas pushed him backward and set his shirt and hat ablaze. As Stephen tore off his clothing to save himself, the craft lifted into the air and disappeared. Stunned and shaken, Stephen looked down at his now bare chest. He saw burn marks on his chest and abdomen. They resembled the exhaust vent on the side of the ship, formed in the same grid pattern that the gas was expelled from. It was as if he had been marked. Stephen couldn't gather his wits about him. What had just happened to him? And what would happen next? His only thought was to get as far away from that spot as he could. He needed to get back to his motel room and rest. Part two, stumbling toward home. Stephen was disoriented. He was confused. His head hurt and he was nauseous. Soon he began vomiting. All he wanted to do was lay down in a comfortable place and go to sleep, but not there. He knew that he needed to leave the area as quickly as he could. He was terrified that one or both of the ships would return for him. Still feeling nauseous, Stephen turned his sights toward getting back to his motel. But that was a more difficult feat than he bargained for. Something had messed with his compass. It was no longer accurate. He always relied on it to find his way back after prospecting. And now he felt stranded. Stephen had no choice but to try to find his own way out of the wilderness. And in his condition, that seemed next to impossible. Stephen stumbled around for hours. He was guessing about which way he should head. For all he knew, he was wading deeper into the wilderness. Darkness fell, and he had still not found safety. He eventually found a road. Finally, and mercifully, he was spotted by the Royal Mounted Canadian Police on the side of the road. Officer Constable G.A. Salatki found Stephen after he had been wandering senselessly for hours. Salatki was suspicious of Stephen's erratic behavior. He assumed the other man to be drunk, but it didn't seem to make sense. Stephen did not have the smell of alcohol on him. Alarmingly, he smelled like sulfur instead. The next few moments between the two men are in debate. Salatki reported that he offered the disoriented man medical attention, but Stephen firmly refused. Noticing Stephen's chest wounds, he asked the injured man if he could at least inspect them. Again, Stephen said no. Salatki would put in his incident report that he thought the wounds looked as if a charred object had been rubbed across Stephen's chest. He also indicated that he saw no burns on Stephen's head, even though his hat had caught fire. Later, Stephen would disagree with Salatki's observations and accuse the officer of being unhelpful and dismissive of his situation, withholding the medical attention he clearly needed. Salatki did help Stephen get back to the Falcon Motor Hotel, though. It had taken Stephen nine hours to make his way back to where he had begun that day. Upon his arrival, he spoke with the motel owner, indicating that he was feeling ill and needed to see a doctor. 
Unfortunately, the owner of the motel informed Stephen the doctor was unavailable. Feeling dejected, Stephen had little choice but to remain to his room where he could get some rest. At least he could be comfortable for a while. When he woke up, he phoned his wife to tell her about his remarkable and unsettling experience. They agreed that he should take a bus back to Winnipeg where he could see a doctor because he was still in pain and feeling ill. He was also concerned about the odd burns on his torso. He promised his wife that he would be on the next bus home and he left the motel. Part three, medical complications. Stephen's wife took him to the emergency room at Misericordia Health Center once he arrived back home. She was frightened by his appearance and the fact that he was still feeling unwell. He was admitted to the hospital with multiple symptoms. He was nauseous, suffering from headaches, and his burn marks had turned into sores, still in the shape of a grid. And he still smelled strongly of sulfur. Stephen was treated for his injuries, and the hospital did all they could to make him comfortable. However, he was still not back to his old self once the hospital released him. He was still suffering from the symptoms he'd had since his encounter. He was also experiencing episodes of blacking out, diarrhea, and weight loss. He was clearly not recovered and was deteriorating. Stephen told his stories to the doctors. It seemed nearly preposterous and unbelievable. Perhaps this man was not entirely sane, they wondered. There was obviously something wrong with him, medically, but they could not explain why he was suffering. And yet, his explanation didn't seem sufficient either. Whatever the cause, they had reached the end of whatever services they could provide him. They had treated his symptoms, but with no underlying cause, there was nothing else they could do. Stephen was not willing to accept this response. Instead, he sought help from the Mayo Clinic in the United States. The experts at the famed healthcare clinic ran tests and determined two very important details. The first was that Stephen's symptoms all pointed toward an indication of radiation poisoning. The second, and perhaps most important, determination was that Stephen was perfectly sane. No matter how unbelievable his story might be, he was not a lunatic who was seeking attention. In other words, Stephen was not lying about what happened to him that day in Falcon Lake. The doctors were alarmed by the possibility that Stephen may have been exposed to radiation. So they tested him to establish how severely he had been affected by the radiation. That would be the first and most important health issue they could address. The doctors did not get the results they were expecting. There was no radiation present. His doctors were completely stumped. Here was a patient exhibiting all the classic signs of radiation poisoning, yet not a trace of the poison could be detected. It seemed that Stephen's illness had no traceable cause. To further confuse the medical staff, Stephen's white blood cell count had dropped to dangerous levels. If this trend continued, Stephen would lose all ability to fight off illness or infection. His immune system was in severe danger. For the rest of his life, Stephen would struggle with his symptoms never fully recovering from his experience at Falcon Lake. And he would carry a physical reminder with him until the day he died at 83 years old. 
the burn marks would make reappearances from time to time. Stephen's medical mysteries weren't the only lingering questions after Stephen returned home to his family in Winnipeg. In fact, this was only the beginning. Part 4. A Seed of Doubt The authorities in Manitoba became aware of Stephen's story, and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police decided they needed to investigate the situation. Many authorities and agencies, both Canadian and American, questioned Stephen exhaustively. They visited his home multiple times to go over the events of that day. They also interviewed people who were at the motel where Stephen was staying that weekend. In particular, they wondered, was there alcohol involved? According to the manager of the cafe, located at the Falcon Motor Hotel, Stephen had indeed been present in the bar the evening before his incident and had been drinking. The manager outlined to the police that Stephen had three beers, left the motel for about an hour and a half, then returned to drink two more beers. At no point, the manager admitted, did Stephen seem inebriated. The RCMP officers were certain they had their answer. This was a case of intoxication and not a paranormal sighting. Still, how could they explain his injuries? He must have hurt himself by doing something stupid when he was drunk. His UFO sighting was probably only a cover story, so he wouldn't get blamed for whatever had happened. The authorities were prepared to shrug it off. However, the police continued their inquiries. The owner of the motel confirmed that she remembered seeing Stephen on the day of the incident, late in the afternoon after he returned. She remembered how he approached her asking for help in contacting a doctor. The motel owner and anybody else he came in contact with that day all agreed that Stephen seemed to be acting drunk. They were puzzled over this though because nobody could smell any alcohol on him. Still, the police were thinking they might be able to close this case. They traveled to the Michelac home one more time to question him about his alcohol consumption. However, Stephen vehemently denied that he'd had anything to drink at all that evening. In fact, he told them he hardly ever drank beer. If he were going to drink anything at all, it would be wine, but even that was rare. He argued against the cafe manager's story further. The manager placed Stephen in the bar room at 8 p.m. Stephen's bus didn't get into Falcon Lake until nearly 9.30 that night. After checking into his motel room, he read for a while before heading down to the cafe at 11 o'clock for a hamburger and a cup of coffee. The police investigated local liquor stores. They wondered if perhaps Stephen had purchased some alcohol and brought it back to his room and drank in privacy. Yet they couldn't place him in any of the nearby liquor stores, nor did they turn up evidence of empty alcohol bottles in his room when they questioned the maid. It seemed to the RCMP that they could find no clear answers. Perhaps it was time to conduct a physical investigation of the landing site. Part five, an intense investigation. As their investigation wore on with no helpful direction, the authorities decided perhaps they should consider the possibility that maybe something really did happen in the wilderness that day. They invited Stephen to guide them to the place his encounter happened. But this was in the direct aftermath of his injuries. Stephen was still far too ill to go anywhere. 
He could not even eat solid food. How could he guide a team through the wilderness? He declined under doctor's orders, but provided them with a sketch of the area they should look for. Although the agencies involved were becoming slightly skeptical of Stephen's story, they weren't quite ready to dismiss this incident. After all, it was better to be safe than sorry. And there was no denying that Stephen's illness was puzzling. On May 31st, 1967, 11 days after Stephen's mysterious encounter with what he still believed to be an experimental military aircraft, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and Canadian Armed Forces began searching on their own for the site. They brought in an army helicopter so they could get a good overhead view and also had teams set out on foot. They wanted to move swiftly. They didn't have much time before the vegetation in the area would become overgrown and hide any possible evidence. The search teams carried with them the sketches that Stephen had provided them of the area. These depicted a large rocky outcropping with a ledge wide enough for a flying vehicle to land on. Considering that the area wasn't particularly rocky, this location should be very easy to spot. Stephen had recalled that in his panicked trek back to the hotel, he had dropped a shopping bag and a saw near where he had been prospecting. One of the search teams on foot discovered it. This was promising. The rocky outcropping must be close by. Frustratingly, nothing nearby matched Stephen's description. Had he traveled farther than he realized before he dropped it? The teams searched all day with no luck, continually widening their perimeter. They finally had to call off the search as night began to fall and they lost their light. Without Stephen to direct them, their search was pointless. They needed his help. Late that evening, two RCMP officers traveled to Winnipeg to speak to Stephen at his home. They expressed the gravity of the situation. They were worried they would lose the trail and could not continue without his help. Despite his weakness, Stephen agreed to join them the next day. He was determined to get to the bottom of this, not only for himself, but now he felt as if he had something to prove. Early the following morning, the authorities escorted Stephen to Falcon Lake in a police car. They boarded onto a helicopter and began the day with an air search. However, that wasn't helpful. Everything looked radically different to Stephen from the air, and he couldn't recognize any familiar landmarks. There was no choice but to go there by foot. Stephen was feeling ill, but he still had motivation to find the location. He needed to prove his story was real. He was confident he'd easily find his way back there. The police brought him to the spot where they had discovered the shopping bag and the saw. They knew that Stephen had obviously been in that exact location. Perhaps it would jog his memory and help him retrace his steps. It didn't. That was the first sign that this would not be as easy as Stephen had expected. They walked for most of the afternoon, covering three to four miles of dense brush and rock, yet they found nothing of value. The police who were accompanying Stephen grew concerned. Stephen was their guide, yet he seemed completely clueless as to where he was going. He appeared to only be wandering aimlessly, as if he had no idea where he should go. They asked him why he seemed so completely lost. Didn't he recognize anything? He had been there before, after all, 
Stephen just shook his head, resigned. He explained that when he's prospecting, he pays attention only to the quartz veins and the rock facings. He follows those and pays no attention to his surroundings. He told them that he doesn't pick a particular endpoint in mind, but simply walks for as long as he can until he calculates that he can get back home by dark from that location. That is how he chooses his spot for the day. Stephen shared with him that he doesn't even retrace his footsteps to get back home. Instead, he uses his compass to point him toward the direction he believes the highway to be and sets off that way. In other words, he always aimlessly wandered these lands and paid no attention to his surroundings. It had never failed him until now. Despite this, Stephen swore he would be able to find the spot they were searching for. One officer later described Stephen as seeming disgusted with himself for struggling to find the area. And he was. Inside, he was starting to panic. What if he never located the area where he had seen the airship? The more the authorities seemed to be losing faith in him, the stronger his desire was to prove himself. They searched with Stephen well into the early evening and still turned up nothing. The officers returned Stephen to his home in Winnipeg at 10 p.m. that night. All parties were exhausted and dejected. The next day, the helicopter search continued without Stephen until early afternoon, expanding the search radius. When they still saw nothing promising, the Royal Canadian Armed Forces permanently ended the search. Part six, vindication. Poor Stephen Michelak. He'd been through an ordeal, leaving him terrified, injured, and in deteriorating health. And now he was being dismissed by both the police and the armed forces. It was time to take the matter into his own hands. By July, Stephen was feeling better. He was still troubled by some recurring ailments, particularly his odd burns. But he'd been back at work for several weeks and was able to function at nearly full capacity again. He and a friend decided to resume the search for the landing site on their own. They traveled back to Falcon Lake for the weekend. Stephen wasn't sure what to expect. He was nervous, but hopeful. After all, he knew that truth was on his side. He just needed patience, and he would be able to locate the spot he was searching for. This time, without the pressure of the police by his side and with improved health, Stephen was able to find the area that had been on his mind for months. But he was startled by its appearance. It no longer resembled the serene setting he remembered from only a couple of months before. Instead, he found a large circle, approximately 15 feet in diameter, of burnt vegetation. It was still blackened and no moss or weeds were moving in. Something had definitely occurred there, and now Stephen had proof. He had not made it up. He fetched the police, and this time they were able to see with their own eyes that there was something to Stephen's story, after all. They jumped into action and began combing the site for clues. The police brought in analysts to run tests on the entire area. Both the burnt circle and the nearby rock facings revealed unusual results. They tested positive for radiation. Authorities immediately moved to quarantine the site. Further tests on the surrounding soil and even the remains of Stephen's burned shirt that he had ripped off and left there all held high amounts of radioactive elements. 
they also discovered something embedded in the nearest rocky surfaces. The presence of unusual silver molten metal that contained radium and uranium and had been coated in ore. To this day, this metal still emits radiation. In spite of all this testing, none of the experts that had been called in could determine a conclusive explanation for what happened on that spring day. U.S. and Canadian authorities closed their cases, classifying the event as unexplained. Part 7. Aftermath Stephen went to the media to share his story. He felt that it was his responsibility to tell his story as a warning to other people who might see something similar. He didn't want them to get hurt in the way he had. Stephen had also hoped that this action would light a fire under the police to begin helping him. But later in life, he deeply regretted sharing his experience. The story was met by the public with tremendous skepticism, and he was hounded for years by people who wanted to question him. He heard criticism constantly and was routinely laughed at and labeled a lunatic. His young son faced bullying at school. Stephen passed away in 1999, and he firmly stuck with his version of events right up until he died. Intense scrutiny and disbelief from the media and the public did not influence him to ever back down on his story. His details were consistent, as was his insistence that he was telling the truth. Some outlets gleefully ran with the story that Stephen had been drunk and done something stupid to injure himself, coming up with the UFO sighting as a cover story. However, that does very little to explain his lingering wounds and illness, or the radiation at the site. Other sources believed that Stephen made up the story as a way to protect his mining prospects, hoping it would scare other amateur geologists away from the site. It had the opposite effect, as hordes of curious seekers flocked to the landing site to see it for themselves. Over 50 years later, you can visit the site of Stephen's mystery. Not much has changed in that spot since 1967. The growth is still burned out, and no moss or vegetation will grow back in that spot, despite flourishing just nearby. There's still radioactive metal melted into the cracks of the rock ledge, and yet there are no answers.